Uh, Father, we thank you for the opportunities that you give to us day by day to walk with you and to demonstrate the love of Christ in this world which is so bereft of that love. Father, I thank you that particularly this time of the year, of course, we focus on your love in sending Jesus to be our Savior. And yet, Lord, that is a truth that is important to us 365 days out of the year. And so I pray that the joy of Christmas will be ours every day. And Father, that as we walk faithfully with you, our love for you will be demonstrated to those around us, our co-workers, our neighbors, our friends, our schoolmates, whoever they may be, that they will see Christ in us and that many will be drawn to you, possibly, Lord, for the first time as new children of faith, others to be encouraged in their walk with you. And Father, I just pray and invite you to be powerfully present with us here this morning in our study of your word <clears throat> and throughout this campus in, the, uh, in every class and in the service that is occurring concurrently. And we'll thank you for what you do in Jesus' name. Amen. Numbers chapter 32. Numbers chapter 32. Let's begin reading verse 33. Numbers 32, verse 33. So Moses gave to them, to the sons of Gad, and to the sons of Reuben, and to the half-tribe of Joseph's son Manasseh, the kingdom of Sion, king of the Amorites, and the kingdom of Og, king of Bashan, the land with its cities, with their territories, the cities of the surrounding land. And the sons of Gad built Dibon and Adaroth and Aror, and Atroth Shophan, and Jazer and Jogbaha, and Beth Nimrah and Beth Haran as fortified cities and sheepfolds for sheep. And the sons of Reuben built Heshbon and Eliala and Kiriathim, and Nebo and Baalmeon, their names being changed, and Sibmah and gave other names to the cities which they built. And the sons of Machir, the son of Manasseh, went to Gilead and took it and dispossessed the Amorites who were in it. So Moses gave Gilead to Machir, the son of Manasseh, and he lived in it. And Jer, the son of Manasseh, went and took its towns and called them Havoth-Jer. And Nobah went and took Kenneth and its villages and called it Nobah after his own name. I suppose we could relate to this better <clears throat> if it said, Anderson and Red Bluff and uh, Sacramento rather than some of the names that were there. But these, of course, were terms very familiar to Moses and, and the people as they occupied the region. They just uh, not terribly familiar to, to most of us. We noticed at the end of class last week that Moses in this passage is giving to these two and a half tribes the region east of the Jordan River as a temporary possession. They were being authorized to go ahead and begin construction of the sheepfolds and the towns and all that was, were needed, and that full possession would not come until they had fulfilled their end of the covenant, and that is they had gone with the nation of Israel and helped in the conquest of the land of Canaan. I mentioned to you also last time that as we read this passage, this is the first time that the half-tribe of Manasseh is mentioned relative to all these events. We've seen Reuben and Gad, Reuben and Gad, Reuben and Gad, and now suddenly we have the half-tribe of Manasseh showing up as part of those who wanted to occupy the land east of the Jordan. And what we must assume from this is either they were silent partners before, or what seems to be more likely is that 
they seeing the land to the north that was still yet unclaimed and having participated in the conquest of it, that they then requested that that land be theirs along with that which Reuben and Gad would receive further to the south. And so they were uh, guaranteed in that particular area. What is interesting in this passage is that we have the name of several villages, the names of several villages are mentioned. Now some of these villages have been unearthed by archaeologists, but others have never been found. One of the interesting ways by which locations are determined is that studying the current Arab names of villages and sites in the area, sometimes the current name can be traced back to the biblical name. And by this method, they have been able to locate some of the towns and some of the locations. But many of them are, to this day, uncertain as to their exact location. We have to realize that many of these were very small towns. The word city is used, as I mentioned last time. But often what we're talking about is, is a mere village, or at the very best, a walled town. Probably something of only just a handful of acres. Not, not a large area at all. Because we have to remember that we're not talking about large populations. When the Israelites moved in, they came in with a much larger population that apparently occupied the land prior to their coming. Since many of the names in this passage have been mentioned before, what we realize here, I think, as we read this, is that the Israelites are not going in there and building from scratch these towns. What they're doing is they're coming on the scene and rebuilding the towns. They're restoring and repairing the towns because they have just moved through in conquest. They have destroyed the uh, Amorites who dwelled in this area. So war took place here. And so many of the towns were probably damaged. They were probably in a rundown condition compared to what they wanted them to be. So what we're really reading about here is reconstruction, refurbishing, maybe some expansion because of larger population to be living in the area, not new cities. But the passage does mention in verse 38 that names were changed, that the names of some of the towns were changed. This, of course, ultimately further confuses the effort to try to locate these um, places because the names were not consistently the same. Now, why were some of the names changed? Not all the names were changed. A few of the names were changed. We're not sure even which all names were changed, except in a few cases. Names were changed often because it was very characteristic throughout the pagan Near East for towns to be named in a manner that related to a deity of some sort. And we see this sometimes in, in compound names, like one of them that we read about here, and I'll mention again in a moment. Certainly the Israelites would not want to live in a town that bore the name of a pagan deity, so they would rename that town. Exactly which ones were renamed, we're not able to tell for sure, except in an instance or two here. For example, in this passage we find the name Heshbon. Now the name Heshbon meant reckoning. There's nothing wrong with that name. That name was a good name in Hebrew as it was in Amorite. And so the name Heshbon is retained because if you read later on in the book of Jeremiah, which was written nearly a thousand years later, you discover that the name Heshbon shows up again. But you also find in this passage the term or the name Baal Meon. Now we know well from what our studies have been so far that the name Baal, which basically in Canaanite meant Lord, 
was used for a major fertility deity who, who showed up in many forms. And so obviously they wouldn't want to live in a town named for Baal. You know, it'd be like us moving into a town and, and the town's name was Allah. You know, we'd probably want to change the name and we don't want to live in Allah, probably. Except, of course, in modern Arabic, uh, Allah is a perfectly good name. It's the name they use for God in the Bible. That's how they translate the name God in the Bible is Allah so that the Arabs can relate to it. But they have to understand that the Allah of the Bible is not the Allah of Islam. Totally, totally different gods in terms of their characteristics and attributes. The word Baal Ma'an meant Lord of the Habitation. They weren't going to live in a town that was called Lord of the Habitation when the Lord was the pagan deity Baal. So they changed the name to Beth Ma'an, which means House of the Habitation. And that was perfectly acceptable, and that's the way it shows up later in Scripture. You'll find Beth shows up many times when it comes to uh, names of towns and places in Israel because it means house, like Bethlehem, house of bread, in which Jesus was born. Thus we have in this passage the beginning of the occupation of the land. But not really the land, as we're going to see as we get to chapter 34. Um, where they are occupying wasn't part of what God originally delineated as to be the promised land. But nevertheless, this is granted to them by Moses, by God's authority. And so it now becomes a part of the promised land as a result. It becomes the permanent home for two and a half tribes. For the Reubenites, the Gadites, and half the tribe of Manasseh, this now becomes their permanent home. This question has now been answered for them. For 40 years, they've been traveling. They have been nomadic. They have been Bedouins. They have been moving from place to place to place. And as you read chapter 33, uh, we aren't going to read the first part of chapter 33, but if sometime you uh, want something to help you to sleep, read chapter 33. It tells you they journeyed from Hazaroth and camped at Ribmah, and they journeyed from Rithma and they camped at Rimon Perez, and they left Rimon Perez, and you know, it's kind of like some people's recounting of their trip. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever watched home movies where they say, oh, look, here we are at, and here we are at, and here we are at, and here we are at. <laughs> well, at least you proves, proves you were there. <laughs> but that's sort of what this passage is like. Actually, though, these men who settle the land are going to be part of the conquering army. And as they help conquer the rest of Palestine, it could be, it wasn't called Palestine yet, uh, Canaan. Palestine comes much, much later after the, in the days of the Romans. Um, they're going to see uh, some greener areas. They're going to see some forested areas. They're going to see some watered areas. Uh, probably a few of them are going to say, why did we pick Gilead? It's a little high and dry over there. But nevertheless, uh, that would, uh, would be their home. They wouldn't be able to settle in it yet, however. Although they're going to rebuild the cities and they're going to build sheepfold and they're going to settle their families and their children and their sheep and all their animals into the land, the warriors have several years ahead of them. Many times we don't realize that the conquest didn't happen overnight. The whole book of Joshua deals with the conquest. The conquest was a multi-year affair. It took a long time to, to conquer the land. And of course, they're putting in some of the infrastructure to begin with here before they go into conquest, and after they come back, they have to finish up whatever was left undone. 
So we're probably looking here at somewhere in the neighborhood of a decade before these people could literally settle down and as the Old Testament pictures it, rest in the shade of their vineyard. It's a symbol of peace in the Old Testament. When one could sit in quiet and peace and security in the shade of his orchard or in the shade of his vineyard. That was the symbol of peace, true shalom, at least physically, culturally, socially, as portrayed in the Old Testament. In spite of the fact that much time of reconstruction was before them, in spite of the fact that seven years of warfare lie in front of them, these men and their families began to know true contentment. True contentment because they have received the promise and they have learned to trust and obey. And that, of course, is the foundation of genuine contentment. Not just that you have a home, that you have a car, that you have a secure job, that you have your health. Those are good things and and we're grateful for those things. But true contentment rests in knowing that we are trusting and obeying the one who has promised us eternal life, who has given to us a promised land. And in their act of going out as sort of the vanguard for the Israelite army, they were fulfilling their share of the covenant, not only the greater Mosaic covenant and prior to that the Abrahamic covenant, but the individual covenant they had made as Reubenites, Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh in saying, we will do this in exchange for this land. And they swore this before God himself. The result will be great blessing upon them. I'd like to backtrack just briefly here to Leviticus chapter 26 and read a few verses from that wonderful passage in Leviticus that recounts the blessings that would come upon God's people for their obedience. Leviticus chapter 26, beginning at verse 3. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments so as to carry them out, then I shall give you rains in their season, so that the land will yield its produce and the trees of the field will bear their fruit. Indeed, your threshing will last you, for, last you until grape gathering, and grape gathering will last until sowing time. You will thus eat your food to the full and live securely in your land. I shall also grant peace in the land, so that you may lie down with no one making you tremble. I shall also eliminate harmful beasts from the land, and no sword will pass through your land. But you will chase your enemies, and they will fall before you by the sword. Five of you will chase a hundred, and a hundred of you will chase ten thousand, and your enemies will fall before you by the sword. So I will turn toward you and make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will confirm my covenant with you. Wonderful blessing for God's people. That is the promise that God makes to all of his obedient people. It doesn't always come in the same form to all, but this is the promise God made to his nation, Israel. And the Reubenites, Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, as they walked in obedience and as they helped conquer the land and then returned to what they had been given by that covenant, this was to be their experience too. To the degree that they continued to carry out the ordinances of God. And that's why Moses was so adamant 
that they learn the truth. Moses was a teacher. Moses, of course, received the commandments, but he wrote them down. God wrote them originally, of course, and, and then they were written again after Moses broke the original commandments. And then wrote, Moses wrote out all the rest of it. I mean, the first five books of the Bible were written by Moses at the inspiration of God. And this was done for their instruction. This was done so that they would know exactly what God re required of them. And, you know, as you read through these things, sometimes you feel, you know, there's a lot of repetitiveness here. Uh, but the reason is very clear. We learn by repetition, don't we? Uh -huh. I figured out what my name was because I kept being called by it, you know, and eventually I figured out that must be my name. And, you know, repetition is, is what finally gets things home to us. I have people every once in a while who, who complain about having to memorize something. You know, it's as if education system today is trying to, has been, trying to move away from memorizing to uh, whatever else, you know, fly by the seat of your pants type approach. But there's some things you just have to memorize. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, we're told to memorize the scripture, you know, hide the word of God in our hearts. How do we hide that? Just by kind of flying over it once and thinking, well, I hope I remember that. No, we spend time with it. And so it was for these people. They needed to know the word so they could live by the word. And as they live by the word, the peace of God would be theirs. Peace that the world does not know. Let's move on to chapter 33. This chapter reviews the whole journey from the time they, they left Egypt until the time they were camped there on the plains of Moab, east of the Jordan River where they were preparing for the invasion. But the invasion didn't happen yet because Moses was still alive. Moses had some more teaching to do, more writing to do, and then he would pass from the scene and Joshua would inherit the leadership and then they could go forward after Joshua was confirmed. And most of us are familiar with that exciting first chapter of Joshua where Joshua stands face to face with the angel of the Lord, God incarnate, are you for us or are you against us? Then, of course, Joshua, at the end of his life, saying, but it's for me and for my house. We will serve the Lord. Great detail of place is given here in this chapter. It would take us a while to read through it, and there wouldn't be any real point in it at this juncture. Some of the places mentioned, we only know because they're listed here. We, we don't know the exact location. They have not been found because they are out in the Sinai somewhere, probably the names of a little oasis along the way, which have been lost in the sands of history. Many of these names are not mentioned prior in Scripture to this moment. And so what we have here is Moses giving us a fuller account of the travels that we have read about up to this point listing the actual names of all the stops because as, as in the passage we read before, it sounds like they went from here and then they went way down here and because nothing's mentioned in between. But here we find all the stops along the way, you know, all the motels six that they stopped at or whatever else along the route. But I'd like to read the last part of the chapter. Here we have an excellent summary of the instructions given by God to Israel through Moses as they were preparing for the conquest. Reading beginning verse 50 of Numbers 33. 
Then the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan opposite Jericho, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you cross over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their figures, figured stones, destroy all their molten images and demolish their high places. And you shall take possession of the land and live in it. For I have given the land to you to possess it. And you shall inherit the land by lot according to your families. To the larger you shall give more inheritance, and to the smaller you shall give less inheritance. Wherever the lot falls to anyone, that shall be his. You shall inherit according to the tribes of your fathers. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall come about that those whom you let remain of them will become as pricks in your eyes and as thorns in your sides, and they shall trouble you in the land in which you live. And it shall come about that as I planned, planned to do to them, so I will do to you. One of the things you can't say is that God didn't warn His people multiple times. That He didn't give them clear instructions. Sometimes we, I, I don't know about you, but I've thought in my own mind, why didn't God make that a little clearer? <laughs> but you know, when you really study the Scripture, you find the instructions are really pretty clear. <laughs> you may not know whether you ought to take that job or this job, if you have a choice. You may not know whether you should live in that house or this house, but what's important, you know. And these things God will direct you in as you trust Him, because the Scripture says, if any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God, and God will give it. We have here a wonderful summary. And as is true throughout Scripture, God gives very explicit instructions to His people. First of all, we have in this passage an emphasis upon spiritual fidelity above all. Bottom line, wipe out the idols. Wipe out the idols. Canaan was to be a turnkey land for them. That is, they were to drive out the Canaanites and just settle down in the land that had been well prepared for their coming. The Canaanites were living in the land. The Canaanites had built cities. The Canaanites had plowed the fields. All of this had been done. So all they had to do was wipe out the Canaanites and take over their possessions. This included the walled towns, the unwalled towns. It included the plowed fields. It included the sheep foals. It included whatever animals were left behind when the enemy were defeated, was defeated. It, it included the uh, planted vineyards, the planted orchards. All this was to be theirs. That's why the manna stopped when they crossed the Jordan. They were to live off the land from that point on. They were to become foragers. But they were not to take over the Canaanite gods and the Canaanite high places, worship centers. Verse 52 of this passage is very specific. It says that they were to destroy the stone idols. They were to destroy the molten metal images. And they were to level the high places. Why? Well, I mean, we don't have to go back very far, do we, to find out what happened when they encountered Baal, Baal of Peor, with all the lovely little priestesses that had to do with it. 
And it wasn't long before thousands, tens of thousands of Israelites were reveling in the worship of Baal. The Canaanites universally practiced the cults of the worship of Baal and Ashtaroth, his consort. Baal can be traced back historically clear to Enlil of the ancient Sumerians. He can be traced to Asher of the Assyrians. He can be traced to Moloch and Chemosh. And all of these gods, often represented by the bull. You can go into Egypt and find Apis, a similar deity. And Ashtoreth can be traced all the way back to Ishtar of the Babylonians and before that certainly into the Sumerian culture. And she was a fertility deity too. Goddess of love, goddess of war. Represented amongst the Greeks in Aphrodite, Romans as Venus. Satan is not terribly creative. Once he gets on a winning thing, he sticks with it. And Ashtart and Enlil were great creations, and so he kept them going because people were falling to him all over the place to them and, and just renaming them but continuing the worship of these pagan deities. The images and the symbols of the worship of Baal and Ashtaroth were all through the land. They permeated the land of Canaan. It dripped with these symbols of paganism, as it were. Virtually every town had a nearby hill upon which was a high place, a worship center, where Baal and Ashtaroth were worshipped. These were fertility deities, as I've mentioned before. That's why they were so important. Because if you didn't worship and appease these deities, your, your cows wouldn't have calves and your, sheeps wouldn't, your sheep wouldn't have lambs and you, you wouldn't have children and the whole thing would die out because you hadn't placated the fertility deities. Well, if you're going to placate them, let's really placate them. And so let's not only offer sacrifices to them, let's, let's have priests and priestesses who become prostitutes, you know, for the worship of the God. Sexual perversion has been associated with paganism from the very beginning because it's a very natural desire. And to tie it to the God seems so easy to do. And it facilitated the work that Satan was endeavoring to do. Apparently, high places were chosen for several reasons. One of which, of course, was that on the high place you were closer to the skies, to the heavens in which these deities dwelt in whatever form they conceived them to dwell. Generally speaking, they gave them some kind of a bodily form in their thinking, either human or animal. But that wasn't the only reason they worshipped on high places. They worshipped on high places also because as they worked daily in their village and they looked around, whoa, they would see the high place and they would be reminded of the worship of their deity. It wouldn't be forgotten because they often saw the high place on the horizon, not far from their workplace. Also, they would choose a high place because when you go up there to worship your God, you're above everything else. You're above the mundane workaday world and you can be up there in ecstasy to your God, seemingly above everything else. There is something to the psychology of worship. And if you can appeal sensually to people, you heighten their sense of worship or what they think at least is worship. And one of the reasons that the medieval Europeans built these fabulous cathedrals 
having nothing to do with this, but, but having a sensual appeal and you walk into this building and the ceiling seems to go forever. In some instances, 140 feet above the floor. And these beautiful stained glass windows and outside the spires pointing to heaven. You know, it, it gives a sensual aspect to worship. I don't necessarily mean in an evil way. There's nothing wrong with a degree of sensual, you know, our senses being involved in worship. But that's why incense is burned and colorful garments are used and idols and statues may be used. All of this is to, to heighten a sense of worship because the idea of worshiping with a closed mind and closed, not closed mind hopefully, but closed eyes and, and no, no image to, to worship m makes it more difficult, but of course more genuine to the one who really knows God. Because Jesus said, it isn't here on Mount Gerizim or there on Mount Moriah that we will worship God, but we will worship God in spirit and in truth. Jesus cut through all of this stuff. Unfortunately, the church hasn't totally learned that. And as the church was paganized back beginning in the fourth century, much of the practice which involved sensual aspects of worship were brought into the church and in many instances have never been purged from it. I don't know if this is true of you or if you've had the opportunity, but I have stood in cathedrals in which I felt like I really could worship God there. And I've stood in others and I felt like this was a dark place. <laughs> and I, I don't know that it was totally, I don't think it was just the construction. I think it had to do with the spirit that seemed to dwell there. These high places usually included an altar of sacrifice, generally a crude stone structure, upon which usually animals would be sacrificed, but in extreme circumstances, humans would be sacrificed. That's one of the things that made the worship of Baal so heinous to many, was the fact that when crises came upon the people, they would sacrifice their children on the altar to Baal. That is an extreme expression of, quote, worship. Because I think our natural tendency is to defend our children with our own lives, not to sacrifice them. And yet, Satan, of course, demands the most from his followers. Also on the tops of these hills would be groves of trees, which would serve sort of, I suppose, in a, in a pseudo-Druid sense of becoming an outdoor temple where they could worship amongst the trees and have kind of a natural pavilion around them, I suppose you could say, where they would worship these fertility gods. After all, the growing trees were also symbols of fertility. All this was to be leveled. The altars were not to be preserved and used to worship God. They were to be destroyed. The groves were to be cut down, not because God is anti-trees. He is not. He planted them in the beginning but because they were symbols of a false worship. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 27, we read that we're not to give the devil an opportunity. Now, that particular passage or the context of those words has to do with anger. We're not to let the sun go down on our wrath and thus give the devil an opportunity. But I think that a case could be made that those words, not to give the devil, devil an opportunity, can be seen as a principle applicable to the whole of life, not just in the case of anger. 
I think that it's important that we do not give the devil an opportunity in any area of our lives. The devil doesn't need much help. He has powerful allies, the scripture tells us about. One is the world and its system which presses in on us all the time. You can't turn on the TV. You can't drive down the street. You can't listen to the radio without the world system pressing in upon you. And he also has an even greater ally, and that's our own flesh. The scripture tells us, and this is not a Gnostic principle, but the scripture tells us that in our flesh dwells no good thing. By that, God means that by our flesh we cannot do the will of God. It can only be done by His Spirit working with our spirit through our flesh. Our flesh becomes sanctified by our obedience to Him. But the flesh wars against the Spirit, Paul tells us in Romans, and the Spirit wars against the flesh. The Gnostics took that to the extreme and saying, well, everything of the spirit of the mind is godly and everything of the flesh is of the devil and the twain should never meet. Therefore, obviously, Jesus couldn't have been the Messiah because God couldn't come in the flesh. So they came up with all kinds of weird ideas like Jesus was a phantom and he wasn't really here. It just looked like he was here. Or that the spirit of God came upon Jesus at birth and, uh, but left him uh, you know, at some point and particularly didn't go through the crucifixion because how can God die? You know? God commanded Israel to destroy the high places for their own good, not because God was just going to be, I'm jealous of Debaal and I'm jealous of Ashtaroth and I can't stand them being around. It's for the good of Israel that he wanted them to destroy these high places. And this serves as a powerful example to us that we need to purge from our physical and spiritual environment all those things that would tempt us to sin and infidelity against God to the degree which we can. Obviously, we can't, we could, but we shouldn't poke out our eyes and mutilate ourselves so that we have less contact with the world. But we should do what we can to avoid, as the scripture says, of even the appearance of evil. Because we cannot, of course, completely purge our environment of any evil influence, we have to do what Israel was told by God to do, and that is to learn and obey the word of God and practice true worship. If we learn God's word, we obey God's word, and we worship God in spirit and truth, the enemy will not have a place to get a foothold. It'd be like trying to climb a blackboard with a cat by a cat, you know, can't do it. How do we do that? Well, we do it by doing what Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 6, which we've learned so well, put on the full armor of God that we may be able to stand firm against what? The schemes of the devil. More than anything else, God is concerned with our fidelity to him. That is upmost in his heart and mind. There is nothing of greater importance to him than your and my fidelity to him. He is not primarily concerned with our physical comfort. He is not primarily concerned with our health or our wealth. And he is not just delighted, overjoyed with our gifts and our sacrifices if we are not faithful to him. The rest of it is trash. As he said over and over again to the ancient people of Israel, 
I loathe your sacrifices. What I want is justice and obedience. He's Almighty God. As Almighty God, he could destroy the works of this world. He could destroy, destroy the devil. He could destroy everything. He'd just say, be gone. It'd all be over. He could do that. He could force you and me to be faithful. He could convert us into robots and we couldn't do anything against him. But he has not chosen to do that, has he? Instead, he has given us the gift of his love expressed in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He has given us the gift of his spoken word, his living word in Jesus, the spoken word. He has given to us the weapon of prayer. We can come boldly before the throne of grace. And he's given to us the indwelling Holy Spirit. And what does he expect in return? Our choosing to be obedient and trusting and faithful. That's what he's expecting. And that, of course, is what's incumbent upon us. If we want to dwell securely in the land, under our vineyard or orchard, in peace, with all the wild animals subdued and the enemy kept out of the land, then that's how we must live, in obedience. That doesn't mean, of course, all the physical things in our life will be perfect. It doesn't mean we won't get cancer. It doesn't mean we won't have an automobile wreck. It doesn't mean our house might not burn down. It doesn't mean we won't lose our job necessarily. It just means in the midst of it all, we will be standing on the solid rock. And the storms of life will, will blow by, but we will be firm. And in our hearts will be joy and peace and contentment no matter what. We don't have to sing Noel, Noel or joy to the world in order to try to drum that up. It's there because we have been faithful to him and he's faithful to us. And really that inner peace is more important than anything else. You know, I, I wouldn't like to stand here and say, well, Lord, just for inner peace, I, that's what I want and you can take everything else away. You know, I, I like the other stuff too, you know. I like to have a house that's got a heater and all the rest of it on days like this and where I don't get rained on. And I like to have a car to get back and forth. But, but really, you know, how many people do not have those things? We are amongst the elite of the world in terms of the blessings of this life. 90, I don't know what the percentage is, but it exceeds 95%, I would say, of the population of the world is not as well off as we are, even though we would consider ourselves probably mostly very, very middle-class Americans. We're not jet-setters, I don't think, any of us. And we probably didn't sleep last night under an underpass, so we're somewhere in, in between. Or overpass. <laughs> underpass could be pretty wet. <laughs> I slept in a little raft last night in an underpass. <laughs> and, 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 you know, this is what the world doesn't understand. The world doesn't understand how it can be that it's the joy and the peace of knowing him that overshadows everything else. And that's what God is saying to Israel, and that's what will be demonstrated in and, and to them. And that's what God wants us to know so that we can be solid every day of the year Oh, yes, we have our emotional ups and downs, but there we are on the solid rock. Well, there are two other truths but I, I, uh, that are in this 33rd chapter, and then we're going to go into the 34th chapter, and we're going to look at what exactly did God delimit as the land? Because we're going to find something very amazing. You, you, many of you probably already know this, but you're going to discover something very amazing about what was given to Israel. 
because what was given to Israel and what they actually had were two different things. But we'll look at that next week in chapter 34 as after we finish a couple more points in chapter 33.